0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Feed My Sheep Every Day. It's based upon the readings for Sunday, November 29, 2009, the first Sunday in Advent, and also the commemoration of World AIDS Day. Our essay this week is a guest essay by Art Amon. Art is the former director of the Pediatric Immunology and Clinical Research Center at the University of California Medical Center in San Francisco. Back in the summer of 1981, Amon treated a prostitute IV drug abuser and three of her children all four of whom presented unusual deficiencies in their immune system that were aggravated by opportunistic infections that did not fit the normal medical models of disease. Amund determined that the mother and all three of her children had contracted AIDS, the Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, which was tragic enough because the disease was fatal. But perhaps more devastating was his shocking conclusion hotly contested and very controversial at the time, that HIV was not limited to adults. Amund had determined that HIV had passed from the mother to her children as an acquired and not as an inherited disease. And so, in 1982, Amund documented the first case of AIDS transmission from mother to infant, and also the first blood transfusion AIDS patients. In 1998, Amund founded Global Strategies for HIV Prevention, where today he ministers around the world. With a special focus on women and children, Global Strategies implements international strategies to prevent HIV infection and to work toward a generation free of HIV. And now the essay by Art Aman Feed My Sheep, Every Day. World AIDS Day, an annual event each December 1st, is an attempt to remind individuals throughout the world that the HIV epidemic is not over. This year, World AIDS Day occurs in the middle of the first week of Advent. Is there something that links them together? Perhaps it is hope but hope with two very different expectations. One of the suggested Advent readings this year comes from Jeremiah 33. Listen to Jeremiah's words. Thus says the Lord of hosts, There shall again be in this place which is waste, without man or beast, and in all its cities, a habitation of shepherds who rest their flocks, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the low land, in the cities of the Negev, in the land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, and in the cities of Jerusalem, the flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who numbers them, says the Lord. is our righteousness. Whereas the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah speaks with confidence that there will be a future prosperity and security where God intervenes in a personal way, the New Testament words of Jesus are often more cautious. When teaching the disciples how to pray, he instructs them to pray simply, give us this day our daily bread. There's no hint of a future of abundance or security. Food was a central focus in the ministry of Jesus. It was a metaphor for both the spiritual and the physical. The departure of Jesus from this earth was preceded by a celebratory dinner, during which Jesus took bread, broke it into pieces, and told the disciples, Take this bread... This is my body broken for you. With the help of a child, a single fish, and seven loaves of bread, he satisfied the hunger of 4,000 individuals. Food, or the lack thereof, was an essential component of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. He made it clear to his tempter that we do not live by bread alone, and that when it comes down to choosing between physical hunger and spiritual compromise, the temptation of turning stones into bread was not a viable option. And then after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to the disciples while they were fishing and invited them to eat. During the early morning meal, he singled out Peter and asked him if he loved him. Receiving a reply of assurance, Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Twice more Jesus asked Peter if he loved him, and after each reply of assurance, Jesus reiterated the command, Feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. He, of course, did not add the word, Every day, as I have in my title. But we can assume that his disciples were fully aware that asking for daily bread was an ongoing process encompassing both the spiritual and physical feeding of others. As short as the Lord's Prayer is, the words give us this day our daily bread compel us to acknowledge our responsibility for praying not just for ourselves, but also for those who do not have the luxury of knowing whether today will bring physical in spiritual security. In our culture and during our time, we're likely to recite the Lord's Prayer in a routine and perfunctory manner. Our concern about the daily availability of food, whether spiritual or physical, is unlikely to be our concern. Both are readily available if we want to access them. Physically, we can purchase enough food to store it in a refrigerator or freezer or with preservatives on the closet shelves and have enough for today, tomorrow, and even weeks to come. If a shortage of food occurs, it can be flown in to any region of our country. Following temporary disasters, for example, one of the first things to arrive is enough food and water for people to survive. Spiritually, we also have an abundance. Most of us have more than one Bible, numerous commentaries, have heard thousands of sermons and inspirational presentations, and read hundreds of books and magazine articles on a spiritual life. Like our food, we enjoy a spiritual surplus. It seems odd, therefore, that we should continue to pray as Jesus taught us, give us this day, our daily bread. But perhaps we pray not for ourselves, but for those for whom abundance is merely a future hope. We are told that the precipitous rise in world food prices has pushed hunger to the top of humanitarian agendas. Decreasing financial support from international agencies diminished responses from the faith-based community, rising costs of fuel, severe chronic drought, rising incomes in poorer countries which increase the demand for food, and the conversion of land to grow crops for biofuels are all factors. It is estimated that at the current rate, 50% of the world's population will encounter a shortage of food over the next decade. How does this relate to HIV? I work with children of the HIV epidemic, 15 million of whom are orphans. Because their voices are not often heard, and for the most part their names are not known, they are often the most vulnerable whenever poverty and starvation overtake populations. I can imagine that those who pray to God must plead with Him to give us this day our daily bread as a reality that they confront each morning. I'm also fairly certain that they don't ask for a stockpile of food or even for enough food for an entire week. We do lots of presentations to raise funds for children of the HIV epidemic to point out that to point out that are 15 million of them, increasing at a rate of 6,100 every day. Out of politeness, I try to answer most of the questions that follow with sensitivity, calmness, and rationality. But I must admit that it's not always easy, and some of the questions wound me deeply. More than one individual has asked why we need to raise funds every year for the orphan programs as if the children don't need to be fed every day. Once someone asked me if I felt it was right to have a fundraising event for orphans on the Sabbath. Perhaps I should have simply quoted Jesus when he replied to the Pharisees who were critical of his disciples for gathering food on the Sabbath. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? The contrast reading The contrast between the Advent reading of Jeremiah and the Lord's Prayer lays in the future versus the immediate. Advent should be remembered as consisting of both. There is immediacy to our physical and spiritual needs and long-term hope that peace and justice will indeed prevail. As we celebrate Advent, let us remember to pray for the entire world and to help those who are in need of daily bread every day. And so I conclude with the word from James chapter 2, 15 to 17. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. A guest essay by Art Amon, founder and president, Global Strategies for HIV Prevention. For books this week, I review Bertice Berry, The Ties That Bind, a memoir of race, memory, and redemption. New York Broadway Books, 2009, 205 pages. When Bertice Berry wrote her novel, Redemption Song, in the year 2000, With fictionalized accounts of her family past, she named an evil slave owner with the real-life name of the plantation owner under whom her family lived during that period. She admits now that she had an underlying agenda in doing this. She says, By using his name, I was putting him on record, calling him on the carpet, I put him right up there on what could be considered the contemporary auction block for all to see. I wanted slavery to be his shame, not mine or my ancestors. Bertice Berry's great-grandfather, John Henry Freeman, lived and worked under this man. His name was John Hunn. Barry now regrets that decision. Through remembering conversations with her mother, and by reading about slavery, she she learned that in fact John Hun was anything but an evil slave owner. He was a Delaware Quaker minister and abolitionist, and, as her mother had always insisted, but she had refused to hear, he was a very good man. John Hun was not a slave owner, she writes. I discovered that John Hun was the southernmost conductor on the Underground Railroad. Conversely, nor was her great-grandfather a slave. It appears that John Henry was a free man. And in a quirk of fate, Barry first learned about her revised family history while sitting in a hospital room with her sick mother. After her mother went to sleep, she changed the channel. And on a PBS documentary about abolition, she learned the truth about John Hunn. The historical past has for many blacks been a source of bondage. But in this memoir, Barry turns it into a source of freedom. Physical bondage to slavery is bad enough but psychological bondage to its after-effects is even worse, she says. Barry came to realize how not all history or its actors are all black or white, how the oppressed can be, become the new oppressors, in victims the new victimizers. In these 15 simply written chapters, Barry switches back and forth between her past and her present. Both are painful reminders of the complex family legacies that resulted from slavery. Her story includes coming to grips with her mother's alcoholism, two rapes in verbal and physical abuse. In fact, her mother gave birth to seven children by seven different men. Berry herself was raped, twice divorced, but that has not stopped her from rising above both her family history. She eventually earned a Ph.D. in sociology, and today is a motivational speaker. The road to redemption, she wisely observes, requires both repentance for false stereotypes and forgiveness for genuine wrongs. Bertice Berry, The Ties That Bind. For a film this week, I review a film from the Czech Republic, the title The Country Teacher. Peter Odenal leaves a prep school in Prague to teach science at a village school in the countryside. But why? Maybe he's an idealist, wonders his new principal, or maybe he's running from something. About halfway through the film, we learn that it's the latter. Even his own mother says, You're always running away from things. Peter is a fantastic teacher, but he's a fish out of water among the blue collar villagers, not least because he's secretly gay. He befriends an older woman, Mary, and her teenage son, Lada, and Lada's girlfriend, Bera. Like Peter himself, each of these characters is deeply alone and psychologically isolated for various reasons of family dysfunction. Things get much worse when Peter's former boyfriend visits the country village. This film is way too long at 115 minutes, and in the end, significant problems are resolved in a superficial manner. But the film carries an important message when Peter's mother advises him, you shouldn't be alone. Loneliness is terrible. The gift of forgiveness to Peter calls him out of his self-imposed aloneness. Everybody needs somebody, says Mary. This film is in Czech with English subtitles. The Country Teacher from the Czech Republic. And now for the first Sunday in Advent, we've posted a poem by Christopher Harvey. Christopher Harvey lived from 1597 to 1663. The title of the poem is called, The Nativity. Unfold thy face, unmask thy ray, Shine forth bright sun, double the day. Let no malignant misty fume, Nor foggy vapor once presume To interpose thy perfect sight this day, Which makes us love thy light for ever better that we could that blessed object once behold, which is both the circumference and center of all excellence, or rather neither but a treasure unconfined without measure, whose center and circumference, including all preeminence, excluding nothing but defect and infinite in each respect is equally both here and there, and now and then, and everywhere. And always one, himself the same, a being far above a name. Draw near then, and freely pour forth all thy light into that hour, which was crowned with his birth, and made heaven envy earth. Let not his birthday clouded be, by whom thou shinest, and we see. The Nativity by Christopher Harvey. Thank you for joining us for the first Sunday in Advent, November ninth, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.